you know, it's, it's funny when you're first thrown into the role, nobody tell, nobody sits down with you and says, by the way, that's normal. It's not how it goes, right? Yeah. Like, it's, that's not what happens. Yeah. Um, what happens is you, you step into the role and because you have an acronym as a title with a big C in front of it, uh, it's presumed that you know what you're doing and you should have an answer to absolutely everything, which you quickly learn is actually not what you want. Right. Uh, and you don't have an answer to everything. And the transparency goes a long way and builds trust and is refreshing. Hey guys, it's Chris. This is a repost of an episode I did in September of 2019 uh, with my good friend, Will Friend, who was the CEO of BizNow. He was an incredible friend of mine and he was one of the best leaders I've ever seen. Uh, Will died tragically last week in an accident. And I thought it was important to replay this episode because Will was a leader. He loved the people uh, at BizNow. He always talked about them. He loved the industry that we worked in. You know, during COVID, we talked a lot about the future of the industry and how each other's businesses were doing and how we could encourage people. And uh, Will was always someone that I left inspired by. A lot of the things that he does to build culture at BizNow a lot of the ways he thinks about how to uh, treat people are things that we now do at Fort Capital, and and you'll see that in this episode. Will was a force to be reckoned with. I was really lucky to know him, and I'm excited to repost this episode. So thanks for continuing to join me and enjoy. Will, thank you for coming into the show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, let's just get right into it. Let's talk about your uh, journey. Like, Tell us before BizNow. BizNow is what you do, but I'm sure you've done a lot of other stuff in life. And how did it lead to BizNow? So I moved to the U.S. when I was 15 years old. And it sounds a little cliche, but I was uh, visiting a friend of mine from London, which is where I'm originally from. And I just fell in love with America. Huh. I, could, I could feel the American dream. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's hard to truly appreciate what that feels like until you've lived somewhere else. And you, anything is possible in America. And I think it's important to never take that for granted. We are incredibly lucky to live in the United States. I also knew that while I wanted to move to the US, my parents wouldn't let me. And so, you know, a fundamental rule in life, I think, is if you're not going to get permission, you have to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> So I, uh, look, I applied to this school that my buddy was at. A very long story short, managed to uh, get in. And uh, I went back to London with some big news. At first, you know, they weren't particularly excited. But two weeks later, I had them in the uh, yes, we agree side of the court. And um, look, I'm very, very uh, grateful and incredibly fortunate for many reasons. But my parents have both always been incredibly supportive of uh, whatever I've wanted to do and encouraged me to, you know, seize what's in front of me. And yeah. I owe a, a lot of um, the limited success that I think I uh, might have touched on to, to them. Yeah. When, you, when you're growing up, do a lot of people over in Britain or in Europe start fantasizing or dreaming about moving to America like early on in life? Like if you look at Americans... I don't think they grow up wanting to move out of the country. That's not a thing. But the more I talk to folks internationally and you hit on the American dream, like when does that start? Or is it for everybody? Or like, how does that even come to be? Certainly not for everybody. Yeah. 
and let's call a spade a spade. London is a, you know, incredible city, oh, yeah. one of the world's greatest, in my opinion. So it's not like, you know, they're sitting there in a, in a third world country where they need, uh, you know, basic access to food and water. Yeah. That being said, um, I will share that the first time it dawned on me that there was this place called America was a Thursday night at about two in the morning at boarding school. We were supposed to be in bed by nine and we would sneak out at about one. And the reason why is that that was the time that the OC aired online and we could stream it. Yeah. And we watched this show yeah. and realized there was this place, this magical Orange County somewhere <laughs> across the Atlantic. And, uh, you know, we joke about it now, but I was just at a wedding recently and British gal who's uh, just finished up at Stanford. She, uh, you know, I didn't know her until just recently. She's uh, getting married to a buddy of mine and uh, she had a similar experience. So I don't think it happens to everyone, but I certainly think that uh, many people are inclined to check out uh, what is the United States through, uh, through various different, you know, sort of experiences. And the accents are, are incredible too. I, I was literally listening to a comedian and I'm trying to remember who it was. I was trying to remember before this, but he talked about how if you say things in a British accent, it comes off a lot better in America. Like, a, and he, he alludes to a little kid where he says, a little American kid will say, mommy, I wet my pants. And a little British kid will say, mommy, I just went wee wee in me britches. And it just comes <laughs> off so much better. And uh, how does your accent like kind of resonate in America? I'm sure you get, you even know. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, um, I've certainly tried not to lose it. Um, I love it. It no longer has a positive impact on my wife. In fact, it has sort of, uh, <laughs> it, 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 the pendulum has swung the other way. Yeah. I think when we first met, it was attractive, but now it just annoys her, especially <laughs> we're in a fight. So, uh, yeah. Cool. So you have the dream to come over here. Um, you got your parents' permission or lack of, you asked for forgiveness. What, when did you move over here and, and when did you bite the bullet? So I moved when I was 15. Okay. And um, by yourself? By myself. I uh, got into this, this great school uh, that has a small dorm upstairs, about 25 kids, and I lived up there. Okay. And um, one of the things I had always done, actually, was try and have a job, uh, whether it's waiting tables or uh, picking up chairs on the beach. And I went to try and get a job in, in D.C. at a restaurant, and they asked me for a social security card, which I didn't have. And I didn't realize at the time, wow, you actually need like a visa to be able to work. So I was forced to become uh, what I now know to be an entrepreneur. And I started a few different businesses. Um, and one of the businesses I started was an events business. Okay. I, um, you know, in the UK at 15, 16, you go to the pub with your friends and have a beer. In the US, people were going to school dances at school gyms, putting Everclear, which I'd never heard of, in yeah. Gatorade. Another thing I'd never heard of, magical. Uh, and, you know, then they would drink driving after a school dance, which was chaperoned by parents and you could get expelled or suspended. Yeah. One of which things might've happened to me. And so I just thought this is nuts. So I started hosting events with no alcohol that parents weren't going to, that had security, uh, that were at restaurants that weren't doing very well. And I'd give the owner of the restaurant a certain amount and then I would sell tickets on the door. And that's how I met Mark Bisnell's uh, son, actually. He used to come to our, uh, my events and that's how I met Mark. And uh, when I graduated from uh, college a few years later, I bumped into Mark and uh, he'd started this, uh, this, this, this newsletter business at the time named Bizno. 
that uh, it was that was how you pronounced his last name. The company was called Biznow, and um, I, uh, I I I met with him, and I also met with a guy named Ryan who had come from Carlisle to really grow out the real estate side of things. Right, and I was incredibly impressed by the whole thing, but in particular Ryan. And I uh, flew up to DC for an interview. Uh, the interview, you know, started and and what year is this? This is 2010. Okay. Interview started on a Monday and it ended on a, on a Saturday. And, uh, you know, I was supposed to go back that night. And, um, you know, at the end of the week, Ryan and I kind of looked at each other and thought, might as well just, you know, keep going. And the rest was history. What took place over that week? I mean. Yeah, good question. Um, we were moving into our first real office on yeah. 18th and M in Washington, D.C. We were interviewing event coordinators. So my sort of second hour of the interview was sitting next to Ryan interviewing somebody else for a job, which was odd to say the least. Uh, and it was just a great glimpse into a company that was exciting. You know, they had at the time, we had 10 people, give or take, uh, in the DC office. And, um, you know, nobody really knew what was going on, but there was energy and there were some great characters. And, uh, you know, I just love life. And it was evident that everybody there did too. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give this a go. So you get there, you interview for a week, which might be the longest interview of, of anybody on the podcast so far. Um, so you're 22 years old. You, you actually didn't s start the business. You weren't the CEO when you started. We talked a lot about from 22, you didn't become the CEO till you're 27. Um, let's talk about that journey for a bit. Like, what was it like when you got there and how did you become the, the CEO of this company? So Ryan was a, a savage negotiator. Um, I thought I did a really good job to include free rent in my, um, in my offer when I joined, uh, which, you know, in addition to my meager $26,000 a year salary, you know, made up for a lot, especially in DC. About a week in to working at BizNow, I realized that, um, you know, I was living with the COO and he was really getting great bang for buck because I like to wake up early, go for a run, start my day at seven. He used to end at about three and start his day at nine. So, you know, I realized about seven or eight days in, wow, Ryan really got me on this one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but all joking aside, it was, it was, it was the greatest decision ever. I'd, I'd always had a good work ethic, I think, but Ryan really helped me in my first real job out of college, uh, understand the sacrifices you have to make in order to be in one of those positions. Um, and, uh, you know, it sort of shaped the future for how I would approach uh, the following years uh, at BizNow in, in, in each of my roles. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is, is, is why I ultimately, I think, was afforded the opportunity to step into the, you know, role that I'm lucky enough to have today. And what was your first role when you got there? I didn't really have titles. Okay. Um, but I did guy, of, You were guy number 10? Yeah. Uh, elf. Elf number <laughs> uh, number 10. It, it was, Mark, people used to joke, it was, it was Mark BizNow and some elves. You know, Mark was the, the, the face of the business. And yeah. I was an elf. Um, we did a lot of hiring. I, I took on a lot of hiring, HR, people operations, did a lot of sales. But, you know, when events needed coordinating, you'd coordinate the events. And uh, when they needed producing, you'd produce the event. Um, and I think actually it was a great opportunity to learn that growth doesn't always need to be vertical, right? It can often be horizontal, actually. Um, and there's uh, nothing wrong. In fact, quite the contrary. It's quite good to learn different roles because once you collect that data and connect it, you can do your own individual role a lot better. Right. Um, 
So was there like, the, was the CEO position just like becoming available and they were going to go do a search or how did this kind of, to see a founder that started it leave and probably leave being the CEO or maybe he didn't leave, but that's well, got to be an experience in and of itself. It, it was. I mean, we grew a lot um, and Ryan deserves a lot of credit for that, that growth. He, you know, Mark Bisnow was the original founder and CEO and then Ryan stepped into those shoes. Um, and obviously both of those individuals um, you know, created a, a ton of value. Ryan was really, uh, I, I became quite quickly the number two to Ryan, partially due to the fact that I lived with him, partially due to the fact that I really wanted the responsibility. Um, whenever a role came up, I was always the first to sort of jump in and say, let me give this a go. And, um, you know, by taking on that responsibility and, and, and learning and trying to become the best at each different position that we took on, you'd be amazed how few people actually want that. Yep. You'd be amazed. I mean, a lot of people, I think, don't know what they want. Yep. And out of the people who don't want they, know what they want, but think they want something, they actually quite quickly realize, actually, to do this means I have to work Saturdays yep. or not go out on Friday night or not go home and see my family. And, um, you know, I was, I was willing to do it. So we had a lot of great people on the team who were willing to make many, many sacrifices, no doubt about it. Uh, but I in particular wanted the, um, you know, the opportunity. And so in about 2015, Mark had stepped back and Ryan was increasingly uh, starting to think about another business, which he and um, Elliot, the son of Mark, had, uh, had, uh, had, had also started. And um, we agreed that Ryan was going to step out and I was going to fill his shoes. Uh, and shortly thereafter decided that in order to really grow the company in the way I thought we could grow, we needed to not be a family-owned business and uh, we needed a strategic partner that could help, help us uh, get uh, to where we wanted to go, which meant we needed to do a, a process and buy out uh, Mark and Elliot and Ryan um, and any other equity holders that didn't want to be there. And so for that reason, we did a, a private equity deal. Were you... Um, and let's talk about that private equity deal to close that loop. Was this a job that literally nobody else was showing up for or were they looking outside the company or had you just, you know, again, you, you, you talked a lot about living close and living with the COO, which is, is kind of a metaphor in life. Like if you put yourself in situations where the energy is, it tends to pull you forward in life a bunch. Was this something that was becoming clear years in advance or was this just like, hey, here's your 27th birthday and oh, by the way, Ryan's about to leave and they're going to need a CEO and I need to start thinking about this now or had this been, had you kind of been mentally preparing for this for a while? So I would say a few things. One, I'm sure there were some things that were out of my purview. Yeah. Um, two, I think it was a combination of three things that I see within my purview that resulted in this uh, or that created this result. One, there was a lot of luck. I think there's always a lot of luck in life. Yep. Of course, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I believe in that. Uh, but there's always a lot of luck. Yep. Right place, right time. If Ryan had wanted to be CEO for the next 20 years, I wouldn't have become CEO. Right. No one would have. Um, the second is uh, hard work. Yeah. Again, going back to what I said earlier, we had a lot of great people. We still do. And we have even more now. Um, but I certainly demonstrated, I think, through actions, which speak louder than words, that when there was new responsibility, I was willing to take it. And when we lost our Dallas sales rep, you know, and everybody said, who's going to go do this job? And it meant going down to Dallas for three months, you know, pretty much every week and flying back on Saturday. Who was willing to do that? I did it. You yeah. know, and I called my wife and said, babe, for four months, 
three to four months. I'm going to see you once a week and it's what I've got to do. Yeah. Um, not everyone's willing to do that. And by yeah. the way, not everyone should be willing to do that. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's not for everyone. So that's part two. And then part three uh, is, you know, things sort of come together and it's reality is that not, not everybody wants to step into those shoes. So if that combined with your willing to work hard and the timing's right, uh, that's how things resulted. But I would say the third thing is asking for it. I'm a big believer and I tell everyone at BizNow, you, you don't get what you deserve in life. You get what you ask for and what you fight for. Uh-huh. And um, I was vocal about, uh, you know, wanting the opportunity um, yeah. and speaking up. And going back to what I said earlier about owing a lot to my parents for the support they gave me as a kid and my two brothers, you know, they always uh, reinforce that you've got to, you know, say that you want it if you want it. Yep. People, you're, you're not entitled to your dreams. Yeah. You know, so. And I asked that question because I just think it, it leads into the next thing of there is no school to be a CEO. You don't go to business school and they just say, like, if you just do these 10 things for 10 years, you will be CEO at the end. And in doing 34 of these episodes, everybody's journey to that role is is wildly different. Some of it is the situation you just described. Some of it's starting it from the beginning. Some of it's buying a company and you immediately be, I mean, but there is no right way to get there. But the the common threads of, like you just said, like you have to want it, you have to love it. You can't really fake passion. Um, and there there's a component of luck is if you're sitting around just kind of waiting for that. If you're a person that's waiting for it to happen, you're probably not the right person by nature. Um, and it's just a unique story on how you you got there. Um, in your experience of getting there isn't traditional. Um, the CEO experience in general, everybody sees it a little bit differently. How do you see your role as CEO and, um, the experience you've had so far? So I learned the only way that I could, um, which was trial by fire. There's a great saying that, uh, goes something like good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment. And uh, I think that when you step into a new role, especially a CEO role, which involves a lot of decision making, you're inevitably going to make some good decisions and some bad decisions. Um, so that's what my uh, sort of training, if you will, looks like. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny when you're first thrown into the role, nobody, tell, nobody sits down with you and says, by the way, that's normal. It's not how it goes, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's not what happens. Yeah. Um, what happens is you, you step into the role. And because you have an acronym as a title with a big C in front of it, uh, it's presumed that you know what you're doing and you should have an answer to absolutely everything, which you quickly learn is actually not what you want. Right. Uh, and you don't have an answer to everything. Um, and that transparency goes a long way and builds trust and is refreshing. Uh, but, um, you know, there's a great book called uh, What They Don't uh, Teach You at Harvard Business School that reinforces uh, all of these uh, all. all these sentiments and, and many, many more. And I guess one of my regrets is I, I you know, I wish I'd wish, I wish I'd been given that before I took on the gig because it would have been a lot um, more reassuring. But there's certainly a lot of moments as a CEO, especially when you first take on the role where you wonder, wow, like, am I, am I the right you know, guy for this role? Yeah. What, what are the things that you quickly realized that you were expecting the role to be that were not the role? Like, what is that book? Maybe alludes into that book. Like, what are some of the things that you walked away with from that? It's a good question. Um, 
I think that, you know, when you see CEOs or grow up in hierarchical society like we do here today, the leader needs to have the answer. Mm -hmm. And so when you initially step into this role, you assume that you do too. Um, and I think that's a, I think that's a big misperception, um, because we also live in a society where people aren't always as, uh, you know, being transparent isn't necessarily the right thing to do. Um, kind of like social media perhaps is a way of, you know, only showing the good in life and actually behind that there's a lot of bad. So I think one of the things that I, uh, I, I learned quite quickly was, well, actually it's okay to not know how to do something. Yep. I also learned very, very quickly that the buck really does stop with you when you're the CEO. Um, while it's okay for you to not know all the answers, it's not okay for you to see it as acceptable to not know the answers. Like if you make a mistake, you have to admit it, learn from it, and then not repeat it. Yep. You have to become a better version of yourself every single day. Yep. You have to work tirelessly by showing up to practice to become uh, the person that is worthy of that job today and tomorrow. Because, you know, companies evolve, right? And there's a lot of examples of companies that have evolved faster than their CEO. I'll give you two examples. Look at Uber. Uber is an incredibly fast-growing company. World-class company. Travis Kalanick's no longer the CEO there. Yeah. I don't have a lot of purview into it, but from reading the news, it appears to me that he was unable to keep up or level up as quickly as Uber needed its CEO to as a publicly facing chief exec that is supposed to be representative of the values that we hold dear to us today yeah. in America. Yeah. On the other hand, look at Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg, years ago, was critiqued for showing up at various different places in a bathrobe, unable to act like an adult. If you saw him testify to Congress a couple of years ago, I thought he was incredibly impressive. Turns out he's been seeing a coach working on himself, put on a suit and tie, all simple things, but it shows that he has evolved. Yep. And I think that as companies evolve, you as the CEO, but as the entire company, you have to level up your talent. And no matter what your role you're in, intern all the way up to CEO, you have to be aware of how fast the company's evolving, how fast your role is evolving, and are you keeping up? Because if you're not keeping up, then you should be traded. Yep. Players should be traded because then you're the weakest link and you're slowing down the rest. On the other hand, if you're evolving faster than the company, that's when people leave. Yep. And as CEO, you got to be very careful, right? You got to balance it. You got to grow the company as fast as you can. You got to evolve the talent as fast as you can. Often those functions, there's a lot of relationships between them. Um, but it's a very interesting dynamic. And I'm constantly reminding myself that uh, getting the CEO title is actually not that hard. Keeping it is what's much harder. You're you going to keep it forever? Am I going to keep it forever? Yeah. It's a good question. How do you know if you will or not? How do you judge yourself? How do you give yourself your own grade? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, I would say the following. I, I hope so. Uh, it's certainly my goal today, and I have no intention of you know, stepping down or out of this role anytime soon, but I'll say two things. Um, I have to do what is right for the company as a shareholder and as a fiduciary to our owners. 
Um, and if the time comes where I'm not the right guy for the job and there's a better guy or gal for the, uh, for the role, I hope that in that time I can be self-aware enough to recognize that um, and to do what's best for the business. Uh, I remind everyone at BizNow, I, I alluded to it, but I remind everyone at BizNow that we're not a family. We're not. You know, I, I actually think it's really wrong when CEOs address the company as a family because families should have a mission just like a business and just like a team. And a family's mission should be to stick together no matter what. Yep. A team's mission should be to win the Super Bowl. And to win the Super Bowl, you trade players, right? Yep. You've got to have the best quarterback. You've got to have the best person in each role. There's the famous uh, Carolina basketball coach. No, you have to forgive me. I'm, I'm not the best. Roy Williams, is that it? Yeah. Okay, that's good for a Brit. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I love what he does every season. At the beginning of the season, he takes the A team and the B team and he puts the B team in the right roles and the A in the wrong. And every year, the B team beats the A team. And it just goes to show, not only do you have to trade players, but you've got to have the right people in the right role. Um, that's fascinating. So, you know, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is uh, what I said earlier about, you know, leveling up. Yep. Uh, you've got to be self-aware and you've got to be aware of the people on your team. And look, letting go of people is never easy. Yep. It's one of the hardest parts of being in business. But there's a movie that I think really illustrates um, what letting go can be if the right tone is set. Uh, and it's Moneyball. You know, uh, Brad Pitt, you know, he steps into that role as the coach. I forget which baseball team it is. But he creates a culture where uh, it is just accepted that he is going to trade players based on stats. And Jonah Hill is the assistant coach. I'm very nervous about letting people go. And Brad Pitt just sits down with one guy and says, Dave, we're training for the Yankees. Pack your stuff. <laughs> and it's just so matter of a fact. Yep. And look, you go into professional baseball, you know there's a risk you'll get traded. And Dave stands up. That's not his name. But Dave stands up, says, you serious? Brad says, yes, I'm serious. He goes, okay. And walks and he gets it and yep. he goes to another team. If you as the CEO set the mission, vision, values incredibly clearly and you explain to everyone before they join that we're a team, this is our mission and this is how we're going to go about it. We trade players and we don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think as long as everything's explained up front and you hold yourself to the same standards as you do every rank within the organization, I think that's completely acceptable. When when you started, were the mission values um, already set or is this something that was like an aha moment for you of like, shit, in order to get this company where we need to get it to? Massive aha this, moment. Yeah. Massive aha moment. And it's one of my biggest failures as CEO. The mission, vision, values were certainly not in place. And you've got to remember, they, they shouldn't have been. When I joined a company with 10 people, Elf number 10, <laughs> to have a mission statement would have been a joke. Yeah. You know, it's a joke. Like, Mission statements are, you know, these things on walls that big bureaucracies have because, you know, they don't have to worry about paying the American Express bill, right? Right. Um, but what I actually learned as we scaled was having a mission, a vision and values uh, statement is purely a method of communication and formality. And when you become a larger business, the COO and the new 22-year-old aren't sharing an apartment together. Yeah. So it's not as easy to know why we're getting out of bed every single morning. It's not as easy to understand how we go about doing some things. You know, you mentioned culture. Let's talk about culture for a second as well, because I think the three are intertwined. B 
BizNow's mission is to connect the commercial real estate community to do more business. That's it. Do more business. Our mission is crystal clear. Our vision is crystal clear too, as are our values and our principles. Now, culture, if you Google it, right, is um, it's the customs by which a people go about doing things, right? So you have the customs, which is the way of things, and then the people. You combine those two things and then you have the culture. Yeah. I think in corporate America today, culture has to be split into two different sections. One I would describe as principles. The other I would describe loosely as perks or practices, right? I'll give an example. We have half-day Fridays, or we have ping-pong in the office, or we have uh, an open-floor plan or we believe in unlimited vacation. These are perks and practices. And they do create value and define your culture. They do, no doubt about it. But they are not the same thing as principles. Principles are the way in which you go about doing things. And they are the 70% of the two. It's not 50-50, right? The ping pong, the unlimited vacation, less important. Still important, but it's the principles that matter. Principles on their own don't do anything or values. I'm using principles synonymously with values. Right. Values or principles only work if you actually live, breathe, practice, and tolerate them. And so we are crystal clear with everyone at Biz now that we hire and fire, we promote, we demote, we bonus, we don't bonus based on our values. And our values are on a wall but that's the least important part of it. It's that we hire and fire based on our values. There are people who are incredibly talented that we've let go purely because they're not unabashedly kind. They don't care more than the competition. We never have excuses. We never give up. We own our mistakes. We give our best today and better tomorrow. And people that don't do that, no matter how talented, they just don't belong on this team. We trade those players to a different team. Yep. On the contrary, There are people who perhaps naturally might not have been the right person for a role, but because they believe in never giving up and because they believe in caring more than the competition and they're willing to disown ego and embrace teamwork, they're able to accomplish what others might not. So once you, the CEO, do this through your team, and it has to be through your team, it can't just be the chief exec ranting and raving about culture and values and using all these words that appear on every single you know, uh, sort of uh, medium of information today about how to retain talent. Once that is truly what's done, then you really start to see this, this, this culture um, form. And it's amazing how much a culture that, that is real like that uh, can, can, can create value. It's, uh, it's, it's formidable. We're very lucky there. You're, you brought up like the biggest point, and I think we even are going through this at four. I mean, we're 20 people now. We're now... We thought we had core values in a mission statement when we were five, and that was literally probably just copy pasting what was on like a company that we liked and maybe making some edits. So you kind of have this aha moment that I have to run the company this way, like this has to happen in order for us to be successful. Yeah. Like how? I'll, I'll be vulnerable and tell you how it happened. We were doing yes. State of the Union, okay, which is where I addressed the whole company. Yeah, and at the end of the State of the Union, I asked if people had questions. And I always encourage really transparent questions because as we'll talk about, I love learning and no matter how embarrassing it might be, if I get the question wrong, 
It's a great learning moment. Right. And this is proof of that. So this individual who will name Dave, we'll stick with Dave, says, what's your vision for the future? And I'm about a year into my CEO-ship at this point. Maybe a year and a half. And I explain what I think our vision is, which is actually not different, not too different from today, but it's certainly not a vision statement. And he says, um, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't fully understand that. And I said, well, let me try again. I explain again. And he still doesn't understand. He says to me, look, I'm sorry, but just like, like what is your dream? Like, you must have a dream. Like, you're the CEO of the company. What's your dream? And I paused and I couldn't answer the question. Because when he said the word dream, I actually didn't have one. Not only that, I didn't have it in a way that I could clearly articulate. And in addition, I thought I had just clearly communicated twice where I see the company going and it hadn't worked. And part of me thought, am I a complete moron here? And am I, am I just not speaking? And another part of me thought this individual must just be completely, you know, I'm sure everybody else gets it. So I, you know, dodged the question basically as, you know, a lot of CEOs, leaders do, right? Not right. proud of it. But it's, yeah. it's true. Like, it's very hard to answer questions uh, transparently and honestly all the time, yep. especially when you've got 100 people listening. Yep. And um, I, I, I go do what I you know, view as one of our values, something I hold myself accountable to, which is making mistakes once, not twice. And, and I bring in one by one so that there's no group thing, different people in the management team. I say, What's our, what, what is our vision? Every single one of them, in not so many words, said roughly a similar thing to what I had said. But nobody said exactly the same thing. But, th but they knew where we were going, which said a lot because we hadn't really had a lot of turnover with the group that I brought in. I brought in all the people that were closest to me and so on. I went to bed that night incredibly frustrated. So frustrated. I had no idea what to do. I wanted to throw this Dave, you know, out the window. I was so frustrated. <laughs> yeah. But Obviously, you know, you've got to channel that and you've got to take that energy. And rather than being a tortured genius and say, it's Dave, yeah. extreme ownership. Like, no, well, like you're the CEO. It's on you. You have cocked this up. Okay. Someone's sitting there, you've asked the, the question three times and they don't know the answer. Watch what's on the wall. So the next morning I go in with, n with no, no conclusion whatsoever, still thinking the same thing. And um, our uh, office manager, uh, is sitting at uh, the desk and I'm sitting in my room. She comes over and she looks, she goes, you know, how are you doing today? Cause she could tell the state of the union the night before was, was, was rough. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite embarrassing. And I said, you know, I'm actually not doing that well. You know, like I, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. You know, I, I, I don't know what to do. And I said, let me ask you. And I asked her, I said, what's our vision? And she said to me, well, I got to be honest with you. I have not got a clue. And so then I thought to myself, she doesn't know. And then another employee came in that was relatively, um, knew and I said, could you come in? And I asked, what's our vision? And they said, I'm so sorry, but I really don't know. And it was then that I realized, not right then, but like later that day, I realized, wow, we need a way of communicating our vision to everyone. Not only that, we need a clearer vision, one that's more concise, because even I have a rough idea. You know, it's like navigating. I know we're going like north, northeast, right? Or, or northeast to north somewhere right. in this 45 degree angle, 90 degree angle. But as the CEO, you don't necessarily need to know that you're going to build X, but you need to know what the vision is, right? If you go to Amazon when it first started, Bezos left 
at 30, an incredible job, high-powered job on uh, in Manhattan to start what was going to be the place to buy things, right? Like he knew that that was what he was going to go do, right? And he said it back then. He didn't say, I'm going to build the largest online e-commerce platform that's also going to use tools like Alexa to listen in to hear what you want to purchase and then use that purchase intent to suggest things. He didn't have the whole roadmap, but he knew what he wanted to go do like in terms of vision. And so that was a stark realization for me that I had underestimated the importance of having a clear vision and then a way to communicate it to everyone. And look, I mean, how did you like figure out what it was? Did you hire somebody? Did you meet as a team? Did everybody vote? Yeah, great, great question. So I took a little bit of advice from Ray Dalio and um, he's got a great uh, saying, uh, or not saying, excuse me, one of his principles is if you assemble a group of highly light, uh, of highly um, capable individuals and they all agree with one view, but you think they're wrong, assume that you're biased and you're wrong, right? Yep. And so his app, which is an amazing app, all the content's free, allows you to create your own principles. And so I created my own principle from this, which is just the inverse. It's not really my own principle. It's literally just the opposite, which is if you get a bunch of really reliable people together and, 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 and smart people and they all feel one way, then, you know, likely like that's the right way to go. So did a lot of crowdsourcing. Honestly, we weren't really that far away from it. At the time, we were the large, so, so BizNow is the largest commercial real estate news and events platform uh, in America, Canada, the UK and Ireland. Um, and we had been that for quite some time. Uh, and when I'd taken on the CEO ship, you know, I thought to myself, well, of course that's the, the mission. We're just going to keep growing. We're going to keep coming larger and larger and larger. I hadn't spent enough time studying what's the future and what's our raison d'etre, right? Like what's our why? And I think that those two are different things. Diff- that's how I differentiate mission and vision. Vision is like, what are you, is it not like anything. It's what are you aspiring to become? Yep. It can be a pipe dream. Uh, your mission needs to be what you do. And it shouldn't take very many words to explain that. And at the end of the day, you know, we produce 335 events, 100,000 people in real estate, 30 million page views a year, lots and lots of clients, uh, 750,000 engaged subscribers, so digital media and live events. And the reason you attend our events or the reason you sponsor an event or the reason you read our news is you are either going to be connected to or informed about something that's going to help you do another deal or be closer to a deal. Do more business. That's it. Three words. That's the mission. Um, The vision, on the other hand, is more lofty, right? We aspire to be the most data-driven and technologically enabled digital media, live events, and intelligence platform in the commercial real estate galaxy. And through that effort, drive the commercial real estate community to do more business. That's our vision. Now, we don't do any intelligence today. Well, we, we do do a little bit. But we I was going to do... say, that's a big word. Well, we, we, we do things like, without going down a rabbit hole, that'll bore yeah. any listener that's not into uh, digital media and intelligence. You know, we'll pro- provide insight into reader behavior, um, which can be useful. You know, I can tell if Chris Powers is an owner and developer reading about, reading about mezzanine financing. Um, but, you know, the future for our business is being able to do that on a massive scale uh, and being able to connect you to a lender that we happen to know is a little bit more creative and open to lending towards multifamily or urban core projects in 
secondary markets like Fort Worth with certain yields. Right. And how do we find that out? We have a huge readership base, which we can collect increasing amounts of data on. We can also, you know, well, we can do that in v- various different ways. And once we have that information, knowing what you're reading is even more valuable. Um, and rather than just putting out content based on what's going to generate the most views, whether it be Brexit today or whether it be anything Trump or Opportunity Zones has been a big thing in commercial real estate, we can put out uh, content that we know you as an owner and developer are more likely to be interested in. Yep. Or we can test you. You know, we can put three pieces of content in front of you on Ozone. If you don't read any of it, you're not likely to be interested in it. However, if you read all three, we put you into another category and then we can move you down the customer journey. So, um, but any event, with, without going too much down there, because I think, I, I think we'll sort of digress a little bit. The idea is that the, the vision, I think, needs to be the rough direction. And then you can, you know, everyone has a plan until they get in the ring and get punched in the face, right? Yeah. And uh, the vision is just, I'm going to get in the ring and, and fight the beast. And so you go through this whole, this is fascinating. And I, and I can guarantee you there's a lot of people that are in this kind of messy middle area and, and being totally vulnerable. We're in it right now. We're like totally rethinking everything. And one of it's because I'm having a tougher time communicating exactly to where everybody could wake up and understand what we're getting there. It's, we're kind of there. It's changed over time, but the people have changed. What we're doing has changed. And so between now and the end of the year, we're working on it. So it's super interesting to me. I think my second question um, would just be, once you went through the process and you're like, this is our mission, this is our vision, these are the values by which we're going to live by, how do you as the CEO or, or, or the team around you gear up to almost relentlessly use that in conversation to where it does become second nature. Because I think it's a lot like I've been guilty of this is, hey, here's our new core values. Here's our mission statement. Here's our vision. Seven months go by. And while we've talked around it, it hasn't like led discussion. How did you make that the forefront of your discussion? So first thing I say is it's really difficult. Yep. Second thing I would say is we haven't got it perfect. I don't think anybody does. Um, Well, I shouldn't say that. I think Netflix probably does the ba- the best job of this. The third thing is to um, why. Well, Netflix have there's a if 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 anybody hasn't read it, there's a the culture doctrine of Netflix is perhaps well Sheryl Sandberg described it as the most important document in corporate America history, which um, I don't know if I agree with. I certainly don't disagree with it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. And one of the things that it talks about to answer your question at a high level is it talks about how, and, and you're on the right track, they really need to be uh, tolerated, practiced and tolerated uh, and, and, and that only. For example, it talks about how Enron had values, right? Enron's values were honesty, <laughs> respect, <laughs> something like that. You know, like yeah, transparency. Not, not lying. Right. Yeah. And they sat on a wall. Those, those values were not led from by the front. And it was not the cult. The culture is not, again, ping pong tables and, and beer pong, right? Like that's not the culture. That's a perk. It's, it's the principles that are acted upon. So one of our principles is unabashedly kind, right? I once had two sales reps making fun of a third sales rep in a meeting, 20 people in the room. It was light. It wasn't a massive deal. I made a decision in that moment, the moment the meeting was over, which I almost didn't make, by the way. So I sometimes get it wrong, but in this instance, I got it right. And I said, so-and-so, stay behind afterwards. You know, like at school. I said, what were you guys laughing about? 
honesty is the best policy here, guys. You know, and they come forward and I say, great, look at the wall, read the value. That's what we tolerate. So go apologize and do that again. And you won't be here. You'll be traded to another player. And I'm not joking. I'm being deadly serious. Yeah. When they see that from the CEO, they will take that with them. And it compounds. On the contrary, there are examples where I fail, right? There are examples where I have um, not done what uh, I should have done. I had a call recently with one of our teams and, um, you know, I was, I mean, things always get heated. Uh, not always, but they can do. And I was, pre- I, I was not unabashedly kind to three of our people. Uh, and it's actually a good reminder because I, this week, have tried to do a couple of things to make them feel better, but I've not called the two of them and apologized yet. And so after this, that's what I'll do. It's a good reminder. So no, you know, no one gets it perfect all right. the time. We all get it wrong. I get it wrong a lot. Yep. But I think if you lead by example, and then again, hire, fire, promote, demote, bonus, don't bonus, and treat yourself as a CEO that way, I think it increases. I will say two other things. I mean, one, I do think we spent the right amount of time on our values and got a lot of buy-in from people. And I think had that not been the case, had we just come up with something overnight and rolled it out, I don't think it would have stuck. Yep. So I think they have to be the right ones. Right. Um, and I feel seriously good about our mission, vision, and values. I mean, they, I can go to bed at night and I know they are our mission, that is our vision, and those are our values. Yep. 100%. Oh. Um, and if you know that, then you know it, right. I, th- I think. But the other thing is, you do have to get buy-in. It can't just be Chris or Will, right. you know, standing on the ivory tower, mm-hmm. right, with the emperor's, you know, cloak and, you know, shouting like, We shall be honest. Yes, yes exactly, exactly. It doesn't work. <laughs> and I also think you, in today's day and age, where there's so much information and so much skepticism for so many reasons that we don't need to go into, I think you do need to be a little bit different. Yep. I think you got to do it in a way that is uh, unique. And, you know, our, our values and principles, they're pretty direct. And, you know, I, I, I find them quite inspirational. Are they ever up for debate as far as they change over time or that they reviewed or it's, it's a good it is question. what it we is have, we, I mean, we haven't gotten that far to say yeah. the truth. So I, so I don't know. It's a good idea. We probably should. I will say this. We, we hired someone recently quite senior um, who, uh, you know, I think is finding our culture to be a bit of a culture shock. Um, not only because in our New York office is quite a young team there, but also because it really is a, a strong culture. And a lot of people, they hear it on the interview process from everyone, but they, they don't fully get it until yep. they join, right? Um, and we have a lot of work that we need to do there, by the way, to improve, which I'm happy to, happy to talk about because uh, it ties into all this. But, uh, you know, this individual, I, th- I think it'd be a mistake for this individual or anyone else to think I've got to join and be a culture fit. You have, you have to be accretive to the culture, right? This person's in their 40s. They have you know, 20 years of experience. I don't want them to come in and fit our culture. I want to come in and, and create more value. Our CFO that I hired a couple of years ago, great guy, absolutely fantastic. He's you know, much more mature than the average person. There, and we needed a dose of maturity. Yeah. You know, half, days Friday, half day Fridays needed to go. Yeah. We're private equity owned. You know, it's an IRR environment, right? Um, and, you know, like, beers in the office every single day, like unlimited amount of spending on beer, like that needed to go, you know? So I think you have to be accretive to your culture, which uh, to to your point, I think 
look, our, our value should be up for, um, uh, you know, improvement yeah. over, over time. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about just taking a hard pivot on uh, you. When we talked earlier, you said you, you stepped into the CEO role and you immediately started working on a private equity buyout, which you said two things. You said, one, uh, it was one of the best learning experiences of your life. But two, you wouldn't recommend it for everybody to do it. Um, can we hit on both of those? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with number two, because I think that it is a, uh, it's a little bit of a caveat. I would and wouldn't recommend it to someone. It really depends on what their goals are. Um, for me, the most exciting thing about stepping into the CEO role was the challenges that come with it, not the rewards. But I'm sort of lying because I find the challenges rewarding. Right. So I'll give you an example. Last year, we hired a head of sales. He wasn't hitting the numbers. We had to go to our private equity owners and reforecast. Um, down, not good. And is that like, is that emailing them? Hey, no, 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 no. That, that, that's like four hour board meeting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but get that's it. calling them like, Hey, we need to talk. Oh yeah. 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 No, this is full on like, you know, suit and tie up to Midtown, take the passport, get ready to be deported to the UK, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's intense and, um, go back afterwards, talk to the head of sales and, uh, you know, say, look, we've reforecasted the number. We've got approval for the reforecast. Um, and, uh, you know, it is what it is. His bonus wasn't going to you know, make it uh, at that number. And so the next day he quit. So now we're not just down a lot. We're out of ahead of sales. What do you do? I got to step in. And I didn't do anything, right? I stepped into the leadership role of being the head of sales. Uh, but watching the team come together and we traded some players who were the bottom um, and it sent a message. And we, you know, boosted up the people that were doing well and we reorganized plans and I listened to the CFO and got his insight on that. And we all came together and we watched this massive turnaround. And not only did we beat the reforecast, we almost hit like by like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars missed our original number for the year. Wow. I mean, we basically hit it. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing thing to watch. That challenge, stressful. One individual quit, senior guy. Um, and look, like he had personal circumstances, I'm not judging. Right. But the rewardingness, that's not the right word. The, 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 the you know, the, 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 the joy that one receives out of, after going through that, you know, it's, it's like Churchill said, you have to go through your darkest hour to reach your finest hour. Right. And uh, I didn't do anything, but the team did. And watching them come together and, and celebrate as we hit the numbers throughout the year. And it was just awesome. You know, I loved it. so. Um, I've forgotten what your, your question was. We're talking was, about the but, private equity and you were talking about. Right. So, you know, private equity CEO ship is obviously intense. There's a lot of discipline to it and there's ranges of private equity. You know, we're owned by a wonderful firm. They're middle market PE groups that take family owned businesses from, you know, rough numbers, you know, a few million in EBITDA to double digit millions in EBITDA. And, uh, you know, we're on that path, which is fantastic. And, um, I think that for someone who steps into a CEO role that wants that discipline and is willing to take the risk that you know, it may not work, I, I think I saw a stat like, like 33 or 34% of private equity CEOs make it through the first two years or something like that. Um, then look, private equity is a great education. It's like, 
getting your MBA, it, it, not getting your MBA, that's the wrong example, getting that training uh, sped up. But there's risk, you know, you, right. and um, I think I've come pretty close to, you know, to, to, to the edge, uh, you know, once or twice. Um, and I'm sure it won't be the last time, but uh, I know what I signed up for. So I think it just depends on, 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 on who the individual is. Knowing me, knowing myself, I've loved it. I really have. And it's taught me so much because, you know, my view of success is you have to strive to be the best in the world at yeah. one thing. And you have to love every, as many minutes of it as you possibly can. Yeah. Right. And if you don't have those two things together for me, that's not success. Yeah. Um, and private equity fuels uh, that ambition for, and, and that goal for me because it speeds up the catalyst that is learning. When you sit here and say um, that you took private equity to to go after your vision, but and and then you made just the comment that they they help family businesses go from a couple million EBITDA to mid teens EBITDA, what are they what are they doing? Yeah, so I'm speaking specifically about this group. Obviously, yeah. there are groups in private equity that do yeah, something do, different. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, like what they do for you? It's a great question. So we're um, you know we've looked at acquisitions. They've helped with that. We have no M and A experience. Um, and we'll likely do some M&A. Um, and I don't think I'd be able to do that without them. And had we been the family owned business we were, we were even less likely to do M&A because nobody on that team had done them, except for right. Ryan who had bought, you know, massive real estate portfolios, which is very different to buying a events company. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, have helped us um, second guess some things. Um, you know, we launched the UK, which has gone well for us. Um, we've thought about launching other international markets. I'm quite a, um, you know, not risk taking in, in too much of the sense, but I'm the CEO. And, you know, when I, I've gone through some challenges in hiring and I've got a great CFO now who has a private equity background, but prior to him, they helped play a lot of that yin to my yang. Yeah. Um, they've helped a lot with, uh, you know, guiding uh, how we think about who's our next owner going to be. You know, we'll, you know, eventually they'll, uh, come out of BizNow and we'll replace them with either another private equity group or accept an offer uh, from a strategic. Um, so they played those sorts of roles. Uh, and, you know, they um, have helped us essentially. They, they, the Wix in particular have, uh, they subscribe to an investment thesis and then back the CEO. And, and my thesis was that if I had a deeper management team, I would be able to accomplish certain things. And they've uh, supported me in that. And by deepening the management team, which, you know, has no, not been easy and it hasn't gone according to plan. It's gone through. Nothing uh, goes according to plan. Nothing goes according to plan. No, um, definitely not. They, they've uh, been incredibly supportive of that. And look, we're, you know, roughly twice the size we were when they bought us, which is great. Um, and uh, we wouldn't, I, we wouldn't be where we are today if, if, uh, without their support. Yeah. Um, We've talked a lot about um, just culture, the things that are driving the business, why your business continues to win, and, and how you think about the team. Um, but what I always think is really interesting is to, to peel back the onion. What are the three biggest failures uh, or, or three or, you know, what are things that come to mind and like how have they been instrumental in like where you are as a person today or where the company is? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll start with the failures. I mean, I think I made three, I'll give you three that I think, uh, and there's a, 
much longer list. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to put the listeners to sleep. Yeah, no, three. no, there's more than that. We've got a long, we'll be here through, uh, through 2021. <laughs> um, I think hiring is one of the most pivotal parts. And you were talking about this earlier with, mm-hmm. you know, your company about how, what's the net number of hires you've had and how many trading players have you had to go? Because while we are proud to trade players, we obviously want to trade less than, you know, more, right? right. Um, it's never a good thing. Um, I think that I'm increasingly learning how to hire uh, and learning how to listen more and make my senses more aware. Um, and I think that had I made some, I know that had I made some of the hires differently, I would have, um, I, we, we'd be more successful than we are today. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you're in business, whether you're uh, the CEO or not, you know the difference between one of those colleagues of yours that is, you know, an A, and you'd take that A over four, five, six, seven Bs any day of the week. Yeah. Um, the second thing is uh, the, the, the mission, vision, communication thing, which yeah. we've already talked about a lot. Yeah. And that, was a, that was a really, really big one for me. Dude, I am like getting on my horse and getting this thing you over should, the goal. Because it's, it's a game changer. Yeah. It really is. Um, the, the the third is I would say is is knowing is coming to terms with what's the most important uh, skill set for my job, and I've come to the conclusion that I think the most important part of being CEO on on the skill side of things, right? You got knowledge, attitude, skills, is emotional quotient. I think it is the at the end of the day the only thing that matters. And I'll tell you why. I'll back that up. Emotional quotient, unlike IQ, EQ can actually be improved by reading, studying, and, and work, which is lucky for us, right? You can always, almost always, bar a few people in the world, hire someone that is better than you at a certain job. I can always, I know I can hire, and I have hired a much better CFO than I could ever be. I know I could hire a better head of events than I could ever be. Same with HR. They will know more and they will have more experience and they'll create more value. To have a high EQ means to be self-aware, right? To be able to say things like that, to be able to recognize when Dave says, what's your dream and embarrasses you in front of the company that rather than terminate that guy because you're insecure and, you know, want to be big man in the Big Apple, Rather than do that, be self-aware and realize, no, actually, that's on you, right? It's a reflection of you. Um, to be self-aware is hugely important because it means you can improve from your mistakes. To self-regulate is the second part. That means in the room to not answer that third question, right? And the next time you're going through it, to not be mean, right? To be unabashedly kind, like I made the mistake last week of not doing to be self-regulatory in the, in the process and understand people, I think that's hugely important. Yeah. Um, to be able to self-improve, social skills, sympathy, all these things are what make up emotional quotient. And if you can do all those things and combine that with you never give up, one day, like one day, you're, you're going to get to the, the promised land, right? If you just never give up, and you're constantly improving by pure logic, we're right. going to get that. And I think, you know, I forget who said this. Somebody said this. So, you know, I'm certainly not 
trying to come across like these were my words, but you know, people are certainly for us, but I would think for most companies, company's most valuable asset, right? Um, you own buildings, which are obviously fixed assets and very valuable, and they show up in your you know balance sheet. So it's odd that actually the most important asset to you, your people, shows up on your income statement. Right. But it is. It's the most important asset you have because without them, you can't acquire new buildings, you can't sell, yada, yada. People are made up of values. Whether they know it or not, they are. You're made up of values. I'm made up of values. Every listener is made up of values. And if you look at the relationships you have today compared to the ones you had 10 years ago, there will be friends that you're much closer with who you've only known a year. And there will be people who you've fallen out with who you've known 10. And it's because your values and their values have either aligned or not. If people are made up of mm. values and companies made up of people, one must, by pure logic, run a company based on understanding one's people and the values, right? Yeah. And so I would bring that all back to, to that question. Dude. Fireworks are going off in my head. I mean, it, it is it is so obvious. And as the company grows and as more people here, having a consistent message that you can hold people accountable to, hold yourself accountable to, at the end of the day, having ownership and accountability for what's going on. If you have no way to do that or it changes every day or not everybody fully understands why they're accountable or who they're accountable to or for what, um, that that creates chaos. Yeah. It creates a lot of chaos. Um, well, you you made a statement. Also, you just said it 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 flows straight through to the bottom line, like that culture and those value driven. What do you mean by that? Well, you made that statement. Yeah. Prior to talking on the podcast. Yeah. No. I um. I uh, I think that yeah, there are, there are various things that obviously flow through to the bottom line, but. It all comes back to again getting the right hire, right? right, or retaining that right hire and not losing them. Yep. Th those are the things that keep me up at night: is who am I going to lose and who am I not going to fill the shoes with? Which are, you know, one of those things is a complete unknown. Yep. You know, we're looking to hire a head of technology uh, at the moment and product. Um, I could fill that role with you know Jill or Dave, and if I make the wrong decision, you know, maybe Dave is the you know, right decision and he creates X, but maybe Jill would have created more. So what am I doing to improve further yet to understand how to hire the right person and then how to retain Jill, who was the best hire, so I don't lose that individual because when I lose them, it you know, flows straight through to the bottom line. Right. Also, you've got to look at the productivity. I mean, one of the things I'm pretty proud of is um, Q1 of this year. It's a Friday, as you know. Q1 ended on a Friday of this year. And um, I had a soul cycle class because my wife's a soul cycle instructor and my mother had recently uh, passed away and she was raising money for breast cancer. So I went to this soul cycle class, started at 5 that ended at 6.30. And then there was a dinner in her honor right afterwards. We get in the car, go to this dinner and I'm texting team at work. And they're all there. They're in my conference room. And we're, you know, $30,000 away at 6 p.m. Eastern from our, from our digital sales goal. And I'm just sitting there and my wife sees me and she, she can see what I'm, 
I'm, I'm thinking. And she goes, you should go. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, you should go, like, go, go, go be with them. And I didn't even say anything. I just looked at her and realized she knows me and loves me for who I am in such a way that just, I mean, just think about the power of that. Yeah. And to bring it back to, you know, your question, I, I, you know, I, I get out of the car, I stop by the wine store, I pick up a case of champagne, I go straight up, the whole office is in there and they all look so defeated. So defeated, they're gonna miss a mass, a million, multi-million dollar goal by like $30,000, how sad. And I walk in there and I grab one of the new salesmen and I put this stuff in the freezer because we'll need it open in 20 minutes. And four hours later, this dinner's gone on, my wife's handled the whole situation and she completely understands. And at 10 o'clock that night, I pick up the phone. We've got seven grand less and pick up the phone and put it on speaker and call up one of our clients and say, listen, we're <laughs> seven grand away. I need you to buy seven grand worth of stuff. I need to pay right now the credit card. And the client did it. And the whole office popped champagne. It was an awesome moment. But, you know, where was, where was the competition? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Friday at 10 p.m. I'll tell you where they were. They were out either sulking over how they missed their numbers. Or they were out, you know, not making sacrifices. Yeah. And there was this digital team, 10 o'clock at night on a Friday. I mean, that's rewarding. That is you know? awesome. That's awesome. And so that, that's flowing to the bottom line, literally yep. flowing out of, and I think they were very expensive bottles. You know, we're, we're still on a budget. We're not, you know, popping <laughs> Dom. I think it was, uh, it was maybe Fresinet or something like yeah. that. But it was champagne nonetheless. I love that story. Um... But that's real, right? And it's that's and, that, and that's real. one situation. Think about there are there are there are a hundred situations that happen today at BizNow yep. that I'm not aware of that were just as awesome, you know. But I'll tell you a bad example. We had an event recently in New York, and we pride ourselves on never leave a person behind ever. Yeah. And we go to this event. The event ends at eleven o'clock at night, and we had these awards for these power women that were celebrating. There's like fifty awards left. Mm -hmm. People didn't. Some people didn't come pick them up. It was like. No, 50 awards total. I think like 10 didn't arrive. Right. And the coordination team's got them and need help. And the sales team's out, like it's cocktails and all that sort of stuff. And it's a, this beautiful venue in New York, Brookfield Place. And there was a disagreement. I wasn't there. I was traveling. Um, and there was a disagreement between sales and coordination about who, someone said, that's not my job on the sales team when the coordination team asked to help take the awards home. And they wanted to be networking and having a cocktail, et cetera, et cetera. So you ask about how does it flow to the bottom line? I'm just being transparent rather yeah. than give you all the good stuff. Right. You know, when I find out about that the next day, what do I do? Do you just, you know, brush it over and say, well, you know, look, it could have happened. It was late at night. Like, technically speaking, it's not their job. Or do you schedule the time and carve it out of the day to tell, you know, whoever it is, whether it's your you know, personal friend, someone else at work or your owner, I can't talk 11 o'clock tomorrow. I've got to address the whole team and get them together and not reprimand, but pull everyone together and say, what makes this place special? Look at these values. Like they're not on a wall. We hire and fire, promote and demote, bonus and don't bonus based on these values. Every single one of you that joins the company gets a letter from me and it explains this. And it comes with a copy of a book that you have to read. And two weeks after you join, I sit down with you on Friday and go through it and ask you what you thought of the book. And if you read the book and you stick around, you're committing to me and we discuss it, that you're into these values and you're in. And you act like that, it's not good. 
Like you can't do it. So yep. do that again. You won't be here. That's how you, and look, we messed up that time and the whole team. And I was so proud of them then too, because they admitted it. They put their ego aside because that's one of our values. We disown ego and we're unabashedly kind and we apologized and coordination forgot, forgave sales and sales won't make that mistake again. Well, and they will inevitably new people come to the ranks. They'll make the mistake and hopefully someone new will have been trained to how to deal with that situation. That's the, the challenge and the rewarding part of any people driven business. But that's an example of how it flows to the bottom line. Yeah. Anybody says that culture doesn't, it's either they, they're, they're not on the right planet or they don't have the right, they don't know what culture is. Again, ping pong doesn't float to the bottom line. Well, it does. It's an expense. Well, I guess you capex that, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you get my point. Yeah. yeah. How, um, how much time do you spend a week with, in, with team, like one-on-ones, things of that nature, whether it's positive or negative? I don't know. It's a good question. Ebbs and flows. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I should probably spend more. Is um, it, is it, is it core, is it known on the team that for something to make its way to like your desk that you have to handle, like, do you have pe- people on the team that take the ownership to handle that in that situation? If it's making its way to your desk? I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, you're in all these different cities. You have all this stuff going on. There's a there's an issue that happens at a New York event. I one of 333. I and that, got, and that like caught that. your intention. Yeah, I prioritize all of that. That stuff is prioritized. Yep. Because we talked about being the best at what you do or striving to be the best at what yeah. you do. I am not the best at a lot of things. Yeah. But I should be and strive to be the best at the following. Yep. Understanding our vision mm-hmm. and improving it in real time executing on our mission in everything that I do, ensuring that our principles and our values are hired, fired, promoted, demoted, bonus, not bonus by, and leading by example. And then working with our owners, I also run our sales team and do a huge amount of hiring and uh, also retention. Um, So those are the areas where I spend the most time. And as the CEO of a digital media company, um, well, I shouldn't say that. My, I'm, I'm a managerial people-driven CEO, not a uh, tech CEO. Not a, uh, I'm not a super data-driven, you know, in a positive way, nerdy CEO. That's not yeah. my thing. I have to hire that. And as a CEO, you, like, you got to know what you're good at. Yeah. More importantly, you should know what you're not good at. And I know my list, which is why I try and hire around that um, and hire people who are better than me. You should, I don't think you should should ever be insecure about hiring people that are, that are better than you. I think it's really important. So to answer your question, that's one of the years where I should be the best. And so consequentially, I, I, I do try and spend a, a lot of time there. But it's tough. You know, you only have so much time in the day and uh, that's an excuse. So, you know, one shouldn't make it. But at the end of the day, like you do only have so much time and there are a lot of people and you've got to choose where to spend your time. And sometimes I get it right and sometimes, you know, sometimes I get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think I read something. If if you uh, small companies often stay small when the CEO it has to be the smartest person in the room, and big successful companies are big when the CEO is the dumbest guy in the room. Well, we should be much larger than. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you're headed that way. But it, it is it is. I think about it just daily. Is how do I just keep putting better people around me? It's less stressful too. 
It's very stressful when you have to be the smartest person in the room. 100%. um, Or when you believe that you're the smartest person in the room. 100%. But also with private equity, look, like you, you know, maybe a little bit different for you because you own the firm. With private equity, I, I don't have an unlimited budget and I can't, not that you do, but you can control your growth trajectory and may yep. not need to show a trend every year. Yep. I have to show a trend every year. So, you know, I'm not at the stage where I can carve out too cushy of a gig because, and I'm not saying your gig's cushy, but yeah. if, you know, I also run our sales team. And candidly, that's for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think today I'm the best person to do that role. And I think the people in the sales team would agree. Yeah. Um, but two, we're a middle market firm and I'd rather save the money there and spend it on a you know, new head of marketing. Yep. Um, so you, you, on the one hand, you can't do all the roles, but you also can't, as a CEO of a mid-sized PE-owned company, you can't be too, uh, you know, delegate, 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 and just make decisions from the ivory tower. We didn't really hit on this earlier and we don't have to go too far into it, but even just being with you the last couple hours and then you tell me you run the sales team, it's very apparent why. Not because you're salesy, but because you're passionate and I'm, I've been buying into you like just since we met here. Let's just talk for two seconds. Um, what's it like to run a sales team and, and run a, a successful sales team? Like how do you hold people accountable and, and what matters in sales to you? Well, how is it? It's amazing because I genuinely believe we have the greatest uh, sales team uh, in the world. It's uh, so much fun. I have, I have such an incredible time with them. Um, but I also think just as a whole team, the management team, coordination team, we've just built this incredibly um, smart, collectively challenged group of individuals and working with each and every single one of them, I really mean it, is, is I'm always amazed by how... Um, by how uh, there's just so many adjectives that yeah. it, it's, it's so rewarding. Every, and even the departments that I don't naturally, you know, gravitate towards. Having learned about editorial and brought on a, um, you know, uh, when we made the pivot to private equity, we went from doing sort of puff journalism to real journalism and stepping away and not having a single ounce of control on anything we write about and hiring this guy that ran IBT's news desk, you know, worldwide, 183 reporters. I've learned so much. It's crazy. It's awesome. But yeah. to answer your question, um, specifically you want to know what, like h- how do we do it or is yeah, it? What, what, how do you, uh, I guess maybe I'll just make it one question, just make it easy. What makes a great salesperson? Okay. So at BizNow, it's 10 things. Okay. <laughs> okay. And they're called the 10. It's quite cheesy. I want to change the name. It's called the 10 pillars. Okay. And everybody is told about it during the interview process. Okay. And they're tested on it rigorously all the time. I mean, spot quizzes to the most senior of people. Um, we bring it up on the sales court. It's the ten- and we're constantly working. I'm working on it too. Yep. Number one is commercial real estate knowledge. We're in commercial real estate. If you don't know the difference between capital markets broker and a leasing broker, you cannot possibly convey why you know a leasing broker should be on a debt equity panel at our state of the market because they shouldn't because they do leasing, right? And if you don't know commercial real estate and you don't know that, you're not going to be good. And that's a basic example. Two is people knowledge, okay? Commercial real estate is all about the people, as you know. Everybody makes money in real estate when the deal is done. Even the law firms, they bill by hour. When do they get paid? Get paid when the deal gets done, okay? You have to know who the people are, right? Um, uh, It's not your firm. It's you've got to be talking to Chris, right? You want to talk to the person in charge of, you know, Avis and Young, 
you, you, you've got to talk to the person uh, that, that runs that team and you've got to know who those people are because it's, it's driven by people. Three is product knowledge. You have to know our products in and out. Our team isn't actually doing sales. They're doing consulting, okay? If you meet with someone in the industry, let's say an owner and a developer, right? And you meet with the owner and a developer and you know their problem is X, we have a product to solve for that problem. Now, as long as you align those two things and communicate the value proposition, it's not really sales. Like the person's in the market for it. We're not selling, you know, cars off a lot. We're, right. we're a business to business information platform. Right. Um, so uh, it's, it's not so much sales if you know those three things. Yeah. The fourth is our sales processes, which is very important. Yeah. Five is sales skills, which is how to run a fat finder and listen, how to present. Six is maths, which you just have to understand that the more meetings you take, the more lucky you will be, right? You only have to be half as smart if you work three times as hard. Right. And the same is true with any form of uh, revenue generation. And then seven is our mission, eight is our vision, nine are our values and principles, and 10 is extreme ownership. And those are the 10 things that we constantly test people in. Listening to this whole conversation, I mean, it's just radiating that um, you have been fortunate enough to found to find something that you love doing. And um, I think it's it's one of the greatest gifts in life, especially with your work where you spend so much of your time. What do you say to people who maybe are in a spot where they don't love what they're doing? It's a great question. And I preface it by saying I completely agree. Um, and not a day goes by where I don't consciously or aim to consciously be grateful for the opportunity I've been you know, given. Um, so I don't necessarily know if this advice can be applicable to people who are in incredibly different circumstances. But what I would tell myself when I was growing up in those situations is learn to love it, right? Like when I was in college, I had multiple jobs. Um, I delivered sandwiches for PD Johnson's, <laughs> you know, here in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when I was at SMU where I had a scholarship and look, there were a lot of people at SMU that would, you know, turn an eye out when they found out I delivered sandwiches on the back of a, you know, really old R6 motorcycle uh, <laughs> to make, you know, some cash over the hours. But you learn to love it. Like, what's so bad? I got to learn Dallas in and out. Still today, sometimes I'll go to meetings and I'll remember some of the front desk receptionists that used to earn uh, order PD Johnson's, you know? <laughs> so, and I coached kids tennis um, and I tutored kids. And I hated tutoring kids. I mean, really, like I didn't really enjoy it, but you just got to learn to love it. Like there's always people who are in worse situations. And um, look, again, like I've never had to be at the, the, I've never had a bad job. I've never been at the bottom. So I can't really speak to that. But myself, I'll speak to it today. There are times in my day today, obviously, where, you know, like there are things which I don't love. If you told me I could, you know, have the same lifestyle and race motorcycles, <laughs> or fly jets, you know, or, uh, I, I don't know, like a scuba dive. Yeah. I do it in a heartbeat, you know, yeah. sorry, but now like peace out, like yeah. I'm gone, but that's just, you know, that's not the case. Yeah. And so I think you've got to, um, you, you, you know, so you've got to make the most of the situation you're in all the time. Uh, and that, that's what I've tried to do. Yeah. I think if you do that, you'd be surprised actually at how, um, so much of it's a mindset. Right. So much of what makes you unhappy and where you are is the fact that you're not willing to even try and be happy about it anymore. I, I think so. But I also think, look, a lot of it's, uh, you know, people listening don't know me and it's very easy to hear someone say this sort of thing. But 
you know, a lot of, I'm again, very fortunate in my you know, chemically, like I've, I've always been quite a optimistic, you know, love life, high five around people on the West side highway when running type yeah. of guy. You know, some people <laughs> high fives. I'm just like, you know, turn in the other direction. Like, Who is that? <laughs> That's okay. Um, if you, uh, had to give yourself, uh, your 21 year old self, some, some wisdom that you've picked up over the years, what would you, what would you tell them? Uh, that's easy. You mean like best advice I could tell my 21 year old self? Yeah. I mean, break up with your girlfriend, <laughs> <laughs> you know, go be single. Yeah. Um, that's what, I, that's the, that's the only advice I would have given. Yeah. Enjoy the world. What's your favorite interview question? So this, so I'm going to slightly cheat on this question, if that's okay. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Because I just think it'll provide more value. So I mentioned earlier that everyone that joins BizNow gets given this book. And it's actually because I wanted to create, in addition to mission, vision, and values, I wanted to create a culture doctrine. I started writing it. And about halfway through writing, I just realized nobody's going to read this. I'm just not that good of a writer. And I read this book called Extreme uh, Ownership. Have you read it? Yeah. You have. And it's, um, um, oh, that's right. We talked about this. Yeah. It's by these two Navy SEALs, how Navy SEALs lead and win. And it is, in my opinion, the greatest leadership book ever written, maybe as, aside from The Art of War, you know, by Sun Tzu. And everyone reads it. And I get together with them two Fridays into their tenure. And I ask them, so what did you think? of the book. And, you know, it's the same question and I'm not perfect at it yet, but I'm getting better at understanding from that answer two weeks in. And they're still being interviewed. I'm still interviewing myself every single day, as are they. I'm getting better and better at understanding from their answer of when I sit down with them, of what did you think, of whether or not they're going to be a long-term fit. And I can start to see whether or not we've made the right hire, which allows me to have foresight of should we start thinking about replacing that person? Are we likely to have a winner here? Could we give them increased responsibility? Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong, which is fine. But either way, it's, it's what I touched on earlier. It's always collecting data. It's always connecting data. And selfishly, like, I'm just always learning from their answers. Yep. I'm getting better and better and better. And you know what? Every time I ask it, I also have fun too. Yep. And you could, you could make the argument, it's sometimes it's not even the words that they're saying. It's, it's being able to watch their expressions and how, how comfortable they feel and given the answer and everything else. 100%. Yeah. Although, and you didn't really ask this question, but I think it's a really interesting point. I'm starting to realize that I have... And my, uh, my mum used to say this a lot. She said, you've got two eyes and you've got two ears and one mouth. You should do a lot more listening and watching, a lot less talking. And she was right. <laughs> I'd probably have made some better hires if I'd taken her advice. Um, you know, you can never listen to your mum's advice. Right? You've just got to block it out. Um, but in any event, I, the more I start to listen, the more I start to pick up on stuff. I think that's really important. I also think it's important to recognize in a situation that you're the CEO and it's two weeks in. And you're going to slightly hear what you want to hear, which is the number one rule of intelligence gathering, right? Like never seek out intelligence to prove something you already believe in. Um, and this recently happened with a guy who we'll also call Dave, 
uh, Dave joined the company and, and sat down and we had this chat and I realized sort of 10 minutes in, I'm thinking to myself, this guy hasn't read the book. You know, like he hasn't read, he hasn't read the bloody book. Like, I'm going to let this guy go and like now. Okay. I have <laughs> like the check in my pocket. I'm let, I'm, here's two grand. Like just be gone. Yeah. Okay. You didn't read the book. You're not going to be able to follow any instructions. I hold back. I say, thank you to Dave and um, goes and I go into another meeting. His boss comes in says, can I borrow you for a second? I said, of course. He goes, I hear the meme with Dave did not go well. I said, it went terribly. I didn't read the book. Because he, he, he has read the book. He told me why it went badly. I said, okay, like, why did he go? He goes, he needs five minutes with you this evening before you leave. I said, send him in. I sit down with Dave and Dave says, he's got the copy of the book in his hand. And he goes, well, I'm so sorry that last meme went really badly, but I just, I got to get this off my chat. And I said, tell me. He goes, I couldn't take this book seriously. And the reason, and I'm blood boiling at this point in time, right? <laughs> uh, and I say, why? And he says, well, there's a couple of things in here I'd like to read to you and see if you agree with. And he reads me these two or three, because Extreme Ownership is 12 chapters, yeah. and there's three, print, there's, there's three parts for each chapter. One is a combat story, a principle, and application to business. And he reads three parts of combat stories, and they were um, you know, graphic. And... Uh, at first, I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? And he explains that because it was about how, you know, the military goes about stuff, he couldn't get his head around the principle and stuff, which is why he didn't necessarily agree with it all. So a couple of takeaways from this. First off, I, you know, I'm controlling my calm, self-regulation, you know, I'm, 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 you know, about to explode. And uh, I decide, look, self-regulates. So there's some EQ, trying to practice what I preach. I part ways with Dave say, listen, I'll, I'll talk to you later. And I go back and think about it. And I talk to my wife who always like helps me think about things and, you know, try and be self-aware. And I realize actually I've had this conversation with probably a hundred people and there's probably 50 people out there who felt exactly the same way, who haven't told me because they haven't had the wherewithal, how they feel. Yeah. So the test is actually, I've walked away seeking intelligence for something I already believe in you know, clapping myself on the back or patting myself on the back, thinking how brilliant I am, when in actual fact, it's nowhere near as effective as I wanted it to be. And, uh, you know, I, uh, this was, a, this was a, a time where I had to, I was, I was really quite angry. I had to really work to, to think this through, but I thought I can either be the, you know, like the Dave bringing up the State of the Union thing and the vision. I can either be really annoyed at this guy and it can taint my opinion of him, or I can respect him for it. And I can use this. How can I get this to be better? So I created a note with Dave's boss, who's the head of editorial, which is helpful. And everybody now gets this note, which basically, you know, introduces the company, explains the principles, explains the mission, vision, and values. And it's a welcome note. And people love it. Or so I'm told. And, you know, but at the end, it says, take this book, read it. And if you want, like, you don't have to read the How Navy SEALs Lead and Win. Like, this is, nobody is asking you to come in on Monday with bayonets fixed and night vision goggles on your head. You know what I mean? Like yeah. one, we're not expensing that. And two, like HR won't be happy, right? Yeah. Like we're just talking about the principle and the application to business. But I think it's an important point, both for the reasons that I've already uh, sort of outlaid. And also because I think as CEO, you, 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 that self-awareness, I really mean it. Like when anything goes wrong, I think the most important thing to always ask is, you know, what could I have done better? Yeah. And, um, not that I do it well. I, I just, I'm constantly trying to remind myself of that. I, I couldn't agree. I don't think 
there's anything in my life that has made me look further inward than running a company and having a lot of people that depend on me that I depend on. There's so many unique situations. Somebody that was your all-star yesterday had a bad day. How do you treat it? And um, I feel like I spend more time with my partner, Jason, often like basically self-critiquing myself than I would have ever thought you would think at this point, 15 years in, it's just win after win after win. And now it's like, how can I get better? How can I get better? How can I get better? Well, and, let me ask you a question then, if, okay. if you don't mind. Uh, not to put the uh, the sort of oh, you know, boy. the publisher hat on, but you know, how in the moment are you critiquing yourself on how you rolled out your current mission, vision of values? I have failed. You have? Yeah. What? Where? We have a very good culture. Um, it's a culture defined kind of how you said yours were, where everybody closely gets it. The answers aren't going to be all over the field. Um, but there is no, there is not a consistency to how the message is dispersed, not only to, um, myself, but really the team. Um, like we, we had a core in a quarterly retreat somehow along the way we, we established nine core values and they're one word. We're now in the process of going to what we're calling mantras, which is like an abashed, unabashedly kind things that are mantras we're going down to four or five that'll that's a process that's going through the end of the year that used to be something where i would have been like hey we need core values by the end of the week like no we need time on this um two i send a weekly letter out to the team every week can i ask you a question why yeah. four or five so that they're easier so it's easier to remember like not having nine things can be tough to remember. Keep asking. I'm just wondering. It seems like a, I don't know, an arbitrary number. I would say, I would say pr yes. And like if you were bring you have kids, you're not going to teach your kids everything they need to know in, you know, four. Well, I th I, so I think to your point, um, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I totally know what you mean. Um, that's a good point. Because I actually question ourselves. Like we have about 17 sentences. I actually do know them all by heart, but most of our people don't. I mean, but that doesn't matter to you that they don't know them all by heart. I don't think so. Because if, if they're being hired, fired, promoted, demoted, bonused, unbonused on those 17 things, but they can't even remember what all they are. I think they can't repeat them, but they know what they are. You know, they know because we're constantly as a management team repeating them all. If I say is one of our values, we care more than the competition, they'll all score a hundred on yes. Yes. Okay. If I say is unabashedly kind of value, everyone will score a hundred on yes, but they won't necessarily be able to read it from start to finish. Yeah. But it's an inspirational yeah. layup. But, and, and the reason I did that was because, um, when thinking about how it would be rolled out, I worried that, and this may not be right. Yeah. You know, if, if the head of culture for Netflix is listening, please do feel free to, yeah, uh, you know, out. one, come on the show if I can invite someone for you. Um, but I thought actually it needs to not be just some cliche thing that's like, here are the 10 things we believe in, which is why I want to change the 10, the 10 pillars, you know? Yep. Um, and so I sat down and I wrote down what I did actually for the exercise, if you want to know, is I took a bunch of people who, I, I took groups to raise principles. I took a group of people who passed 
employees who were really successful, yep. present employees who were really successful, past who were not, present who are not. And then we wrote down adjectives to describe each group. And then it was so crystal clear that all of the ones who were successful had, had the same principle. Yep. And I just thought at first we wanted it to be the 10 things. Right. I just thought it was way too much. Yeah. You know? So, so I you have 17. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, 17. And um, I think it worked. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the thought and effort and uh, conviction that you have behind it is what makes it work. I mean, I can, I've had 34 of these episodes and I haven't talked about this with all 34 people. So it's not fair to say that I haven't, t- but you, this is like second nature to you. Um, and not because it's some scripted CEO thing, like it's truly what you believe in. And I think if you're coming out of like, even going back to the book of what Harvard, the Harvard, uh, doesn't teach you. It's so easy to read a chapter in a business book and it's like, you need core values. You need a mission statement. And you, it's basically like you need something to fill up the first page of your website. Right. And that's what it, it's for. And then people keep coming in and you, you, you keep having the same struggles with the same people, but you're not telling them why they're struggling other than like, you're just not doing what I think you should be doing. The magic word there is a part of extreme ownership, which is understanding the why. Yep. And understanding the why is everything. I'm going to follow up with you in an email just to get some like bullet points on the process that you went. I mean, we've talked about, it. I can re-listen, but okay. Um, it actually is at the forefront of what we're talking about um, in the company, especially for me. I mean, how I talk to the company. I mean, I think there's people, I like the letter that people get early on. So everybody that I'll starts our company you. reads Gung Ho. It's a book called Gung Ho. I haven't read it, but I will. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I could always, I could, this is again, self-reflection. I could do a lot better job. And, and, and selfishly, it's those moments of not wanting to have that last 10 minutes of my day hijacked to have to talk about something that wasn't on my agenda that day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one thing that people don't understand about even this role is like, you think you have a good idea of what you're going to get done that day. Um, but the amount of bullets that can come out of left and right that you aren't expecting throughout the day, I think you've lived this life where you're just constantly and you become used to it and it becomes the norm. Um, but selfishly, you can get to a point, I think I could admit, um, where sometimes you don't want to deal with the shit. And back to your comment, I'm like, just learn to love it. Um, it's easy to get discouraged in this role. It is. It's also very easy. I, 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 the discouragement, I'm lucky that I, I, I rarely have that. Yeah. But the, the thing I struggle with is the, uh, is prioritizing time. Yep. Like I could go into the office and literally work a 15 hour day, just dodging bullets. I could just yeah. sit there and like, just face the, the guns. Yeah. But honestly, probably an hour's worth of, of, of uh, you know, effective work. Yeah. Which, you know, is why you have to work weekends. Because yeah. on Saturday, nobody's, you know, well, actually our office actually does have a lot of people on Saturdays because we've created this Saturday uh, football, like have beer and get ex- extra work done day, which has been really cool for everyone. But you get my point. And, yeah. and that's something that like I got to work on. So when you have somebody on the podcast that understands that, um, let me know because I'd love to way. get some pointers. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. I hope some of this is valuable. I mean, flattered that if anybody has made it through to this amount of content i'd like to know what their name they all get a free subscription to uh, biz now <laughs> to any event they would like uh, hashtag the fort podcast for free subscriptions to biz now to two events i mean our subscriptions are already free yeah, yeah. 
Okay, thank you very much. All right, thanks, Chris.